can. And thanks for those of you that are silencing your mobile phones. Appreciate that. So, um, if you weren't here uh, on Tuesday, we, we had a lovely time with um, fair, saying farewell to a husband and father and friend and Colin. And, and Harriet, uh, just hope you were encouraged, sister, just with this church coming around. And, and I'd encourage you guys, remind Harriet, yes, give her the hugs and all that stuff is fine, but you know, what, you know what she needs the most? You know what people need the most is to hear the truths of the gospel. And so, look, here's my challenge to you, church. Uh, yeah, come around and empathize, but come around and remind her of those that place their faith in Jesus have eternal life. And, and, that, and that's, that's I'm putting on, we, I can say that up front, and we can all nod our heads, but after service and during the week, come around this sister, we love you, and we want to remind you that the greatest news in the world is that Jesus says, as the passage that was read, he goes and prepares a place for, right, for those who love him, because he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. And so uh, we just want to come around and remind you of those truths that, that are absolutely precious and eternal. So uh, we'll miss him dearly. I'll, I'll miss his clapping. Um, I, <clears throat> please don't ever, anyone else feel like you need to take up that mantle, <laughs> particularly clapping offbeat. Um, so, yeah, but um, let's, let's continue to uh, encourage our sister, okay? Uh, well, you know, the church, um, a lot can be said about the modern church when you think about the church here on the coast and church in Australia, church around the world. A lot can be said about the modern church. Perhaps one way to describe the problem, though, of the modern church is that we have forgotten the importance of seeing. One of the ways to describe the problem of the modern church, we've, we've actually, we've missed out, we've, we've forgotten, we've relegated to the side, perhaps, the importance of seeing. Some churches have become too attraction-focused. They do anything to draw a crowd so that once people come, they can hear the gospel. But a desire for people to hear has resulted in a community that's not worth seeing. Here's the thing. The partnership between hearing and seeing is critical. And that is where baptism actually comes into play. Because the partnership between hearing and seeing is not just arbitrarily made up, it is actually biblical. Baptism visibly marks out the church. Let me make that clear. Baptism visibly, remember the jersey illustration I was just doing? Baptism allows one to put on the jersey and identify with Christ and with his people. Baptism marks out visibly those who are in the church. It's, in other words, we preach, hopefully, God willing, every Sunday the gospel. It's an it's a audible message, right? It's a message gone out. But in some sense, it's, you, can't, you can hear it, but you can't see it. You with me? You can hear it. Christ came in the world to save sinners. Repent, turn from your sin, trust in Jesus, right? Those, those are gospel truths. But the gospel becomes visible 
Going back to seeing, the gospel becomes visible when one is baptized. So, the church is the gospel made visible. Baptism, again, is similar to that, is the gospel becomes on display. You're able to actually visibly see, mark out those who are part of God's people. So here's where I want us to hang our hats this morning as we think about baptism, on three things. First, the mandate. Second, the method. And finally, the mode. So those are the three points. Oh, nice, Nigel. The mandate. And Nigel, when we go through the scriptures, just to encourage you, brother, and I, actually this is, I would have said this in the back, but this is good. I want people to bring their Bibles. So when we go through the text of scripture, don't shoot it up on the screen because if they don't have their Bible, they can grab one and we'll let, gladly bring you one. But we don't want you to be dependent on this screen. We want you to bring your Bible for yourself. Okay? That's don't, I'm not being mean. I'm just, you hear the reason behind that. Like, I want you to mark up your Bibles so you can go home, look at it, be like the Brians, test and see what I'm saying is actually true to scripture, etc. Amen? Okay. Now, again, if you don't, if you're like, oh man, I feel kind of, he singled me out, I have a Bible. Hey, in the back, we've got some Bibles. Uh, we'd love to give you one. I, I typically use the English, English Standard Version. You don't have to use that translation, but um, there you go. So, um, the mandate believe and be baptized, right? The method is for believers and the mode by immersion. I, I pray that you'll be convinced by the plain sense meaning of Scripture through, the, through this. Okay? I, I've, I've been, I was praying last night for your hearts that they would be moldable and teachable. I pray that the Lord uses this sermon um, to encourage those of you that have... Um, been obedient in this area, and for those of you that you need to really sit in this space and, and process these things. What we're going to do at the end is have a time of Q&A um, where you can actually flick in your questions to Dan's mobile phone, um, and we won't have heaps of time for it, but you can have questions about anything that I've said. So there it is. If you want to prank call that number, 0423-967-103, you can do that later on your own free time. Okay, so, but if you have questions, yeah, yeah, there it goes. It's getting bigger. Uh, so there it is. So the mandate, the method, and the mode. Okay? Why don't, we go, why don't we pray? Now you know where we're headed. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Lord, we, we come before you this morning with hearts that are prideful, hearts that aren't moldable, hearts that love our sin. Uh, Lord, we, we know that our hearts are darker than we can even comprehend. And so we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would convict, judge, teach, encourage, exhort, shine the spotlight on the Lord Jesus, and align our hearts with him. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, when we talk about baptism, here's the thing. It might surprise you, uh, but... Do you know that the word baptism, either in its verb form or noun form, is used 96 times in the New Testament? Think about that. 96 times. It's, you can spot it in the New Testament. And the vast majority of those instances, by the way, is describing someone being baptized. 
So let's open up near, let's, don't just take my word for it. Let's, and this is the part, Nigel, where we don't want to flick it up on the screen. We want people to follow along. So um, if you don't have a Bible, um, follow along with someone next to you. But we're going to go to the Gospel of Mark. Let's, let's just go to the very beginning of the New Testament here. Near the very beginning, see how it opens up. And it's opening up, lo and behold, about baptism, right? In this scene, we've got this character. And this character is an interesting fellow. Um, it's not like he totally came out of the blue. There's a prophet named Malachi that talked about him. There's a prophet named Isaiah that talked about him. And in fact, what's interesting, what Mark does here, let's just go to Mark chapter 1. Mark actually takes a bit from Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40. And what does he do? He actually glues them together in a sense. You with me? He kind of sews them together to describe this fella. Let's see here. Mark 1, if you have your Bible, in the, right at the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Interesting. Well, who, who, who's he talking about there? Well, we know that it's, it's John the Baptist, right? Not John the Methodist. It's not John the Presbyterian. That's such a cheesy joke, isn't it? But here's the deal. Catch this. If, if we were to flip over to Isaiah 40 and read it in its original context, God's people in the context of Isaiah 40 are in exile. You with me? God's people are in exile. That was their present situation. And so what does Isaiah say to them? He says, look, if the Lord is to return, his people must prepare the way by repenting of their sins, which caused them to end up in exile in the first place. You with me? You guys are in exile. If God is to come, you need to turn from those sins that got you there in the first place. Now, the prophet calls God's people to prepare the Lord's way. How? In the wilderness, actually, is the term, by, by repentance, right? In Isaiah 40, God's purpose for his people is not judgment, it's actually salvation. You see, John the Baptist fulfills this guy, this guy shows up, he fulfills Old Testament prophecy and prepares God's people for Jesus' ministry. That's why you have this massive response in verse 4. Notice verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So what, what's going on there? Well, John, he is a forerunner. He's the dude, if you picture like in a fairy tale, right? This is not a fairy tale, but if you picture, make way for the king, make way for the king. He, he's a forerunner. He's prepare, preparing the people. Okay, let's, but how's he doing this? How's he doing it? Well, it's, it's through baptism, right? Okay, that said though, don't lose sight here. In fact, Mark's not going to let us lose sight of Isaiah 40. Because you ever read, you ever read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and there's a random quote, and then you kind of, you're like, oh, that's interesting. And then your mind goes to somewhere else, and then, then you're back into the story about Jesus and him. Catch me? So you kind of just, you see the scripture there and it was like, well, that was sort of random and I don't know how that's connected. 
Mark doesn't allow you to let your mind drift or lose sight of what he just quoted here from Isaiah 40 or Malachi 3. Because he talks about the way this dude is dressed, right? I mean, Mark doesn't spend a whole lot of time talking about people's diet and the way that they dress, but he does with this guy. Look what I mean in verse 6. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. What is going on? Why, why, why draw attention to this? Is he just intrigued like John is some, John the Baptist is some, you know, Byron Bay hippie who eats local raw organic honey and, and you know, lives off the earth and he shops, you know, sewn, he has sewn together rags and things like that. No, no, what's, what's going on? Why, why is he doing this? Why, why, why is he drawing, what is he doing? Well, the point in doing this and drawing attention to the, to the way that he eats, the way that he lives, the way that he speaks, is he's, he's making a, a close connection between the prophet, Isaiah, uh, prophet um, Elijah and John the Baptist. So, in other words, just as Elijah, picture Elijah in his day, preached a message of repentance during his day, so too John the Baptist called for a reorientation of one's life, a return to God. You understand? He prepares the way. He clears the path. And he does this by baptism. Baptism visibly is serving right right here in this little era that we're looking, we just sort of plopped into, it's visibly serving to mark out who God's people are. I mean, it, it does not, isn't that why John gets so cross with the Pharisees? Because the Pharisees come up and they're smug. They don't need to be baptized. And John says, oh, that's cool. No, you brood of vipers, you snakes, right? Don't you dare say that you have Abraham as your father. Don't try to bank on your, on your ethnicity. You need to turn to God, and you do so visibly by this thing that I'm doing right now called baptism. Now, Mark is really fast. It's very, it's very fast, the Gospel of Mark. What I mean is, if, if you read Mark, he doesn't spend a lot of time with the story. He just goes boom, 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 immediately, 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 immediately. That word, have you noticed that when you read through it? Immediately, 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 immediately. Just he constantly keeps, you feel exhausted. You just, he's moving you quickly through his narrative. That said, you can sort of, when it comes to baptism, you sort of just kind of skip over verse 9. Take a second, though. Look at verse 9, because there might be some looming questions swirling around in your head. Why is Jesus being baptized? <laughs> it's like, you ever think about that? Look at verse 9. I mean, isn't this guy like sinless? Right? Why, why, is he, why is Jesus being baptized? No, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. What is going on here? I mean, it's not like, you know, Jesus would show up at the church and I'd say, okay, Jesus, here, let's bring you over here. So, so tell us, you know, why do you want to be baptized? What, what's, how, what is going on? Well, there's, there's several layers to this. Several layers to this. It could be he is affirming what John the Baptist is saying 
in John the Baptist's ministry. Or Jesus is, is being prepared for his earthly ministry. Or he is aligning himself with God's, God's remnant. Or maybe he's assuring John in this moment that, hey, I'm the Christ. I suppose all of those are at least partly true. But I think the main reason for Jesus' baptism is to identify with sinners and point toward the cross. I think that's what's mainly going on here. Jesus is identifying with sinners, but it's also pointing toward the cross. How so? And how's baptism connected with all that? I'm glad you asked. This is how. There is, and this is why I'm so grateful I moved to the middle of nowhere for five years to study Greek and Hebrew because it pays off. And you get the benefits of it. You don't have to live in Kentucky for five years. You just get the little, the little sugar sprinkle on top. There's a Greek word here. Notice, the, you, can, you don't need to know Greek, but you can see it. And when he came up out of the water, this is Jesus, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, split open, right? That's the beginning of Mark's gospel. Split open, chapter one, okay? Split open. The very end of Mark's gospel, Jesus lives perfect life, dies in the place of sinners, and what is torn, split open? Temple of the curtain. Unbelievable all connected through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. It's exactly what baptism represents. And then you have this voice, this Trinitarian manifestation there, right? Came up out of the water and he saw the heavens open being, and, and a voice from heaven says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. It's fascinating, it's, it's just amazing. Now, okay, let's go back to John the Baptist for a moment here. Remember, God's call for all Israel to be baptized has gone forth, right? You know, you, you picture, again, going back to the fairy tale stuff. It's not a fairy tale, but hear ye, hear ye. The king says, like, the memo's gone out for all God's people to be baptized, to prepare the way for the Lord. Now, Jesus humbled himself in this matter to identify with sinners by being baptized. Still with me? But he does so as an adult. Jesus, think about this, is baptized as an adult. So, if you are a believer and you say, I'm a believer in Christ and I follow him, why haven't you been baptized? What's holding you back? I mean, honestly, I, you, I, I'm, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. You don't, you're not putting yourself in a category above Jesus, are you? Uh, there's a guy that used to go to church here ages ago, and I, I remember I asked him, hey, so why did you want to be baptized? Well, I'll just say his name, Daz Farrell. You guys know Daz. He's like our Pope now, or whatever he is, right? <laughs> and he said, oh, look, I, I, just, I, I was christened as a baby, and, I, and it was under Peter Shaw's preaching, and it's actually the fact that Jesus was baptized himself as an adult, and I was thinking, well, why aren't I? Fair enough. 
That's, 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 I mean, it's maybe not the most airtight, convincing thing, but that's it, fair enough. Because baptism is actually mandated. Baptism's not optional if you're in Christ. Baptism is mandated. Let me show you what I mean. In fact, let me even go so far as to say this. <sighs> Baptism is so crucial. Think about, okay, if you're Jesus and you're going to huddle up your disciples, very last thing you're going to say to them, it's going to be pretty important. Would you agree? You know, if someone's on their deathbed, so to speak, and it's like, what's the last thing you want to say? It's probably not going to be, did somebody say menu log or something stupid like that, right? <laughs> it's going to be something hopefully significant. So Jesus huddles up his guys. Go to Matthew 28. He, he huddles up. He gathers his disciples on this mountain in Galilee where it all started in the very beginning. He doesn't start with a command, by the way. He starts with a claim and what a claim it is. So we've looked at the beginning of sort of one gospel. Let's go to the end of another gospel. It's actually just easy. You can just flip over a page because you're right there in, in Mark. Just go to the left to Matthew. So end of Matthew 28. He gathers them together and look at this claim. Look at this claim that he makes. Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Wow. Stop there for a second. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Isn't it fascinating? Do you remember, do you remember when Jesus was tempted by Satan? He says, if you just bow down, I'll, I'll give you all of this. I'll give you these kingdoms. Jesus says, no, no, no. Suffering is the way to glory, you see. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Matthew's already shown this throughout his gospel, though. Remember, Jesus has authority. We've been going through Matthew for like four years now. <laughs> Matthew shows that Jesus has authority over nature, right? He, he calmed the sea with what? A word. Jesus has authority over disease and demons, when he, when he speaks, the blind see, the lame walk. He, he speaks and utters a word and the demons flee. And now, dear friends, because of the cross, Jesus has authority over sin and death. Who else has the right to forgive sin? Who else has the ability to overcome death? Friends, don't miss it. Look how often the word all is used in this passage. Can you see it? Four different times. Four different times, all is repeated. Jesus has universal authority. And on the basis of that authority, we're given our marching orders, our missional mandate. And here it comes. This isn't a man-made program. Jesus' authority compels us to go. Go, he says, verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' followers must go to all the nations in order to do what? In order to make disciples. And look carefully. Look carefully down your Bible. There's two things 
two things that specify the manner in which disciples are to be made. Can you, can you see what these two things are? What are they? Make disciples, and what do you do with these disciples? You what? Baptize them, and you teach them. It's not rocket science. The idea is rather simple. We are to go, pontata ethne, to all the nations, not to make converts, to get people to feel emotional, come down an aisle and play, play music, come just as you are here. No, we don't do that. <laughs> we make disciples, you see? Not converts, disciples. But who are these disciples? Well, well, we don't know who they are. We don't know. They're just invisible to us. No? <laughs> How are we to recognize these disciples? Come on! It's through baptism. It's those baptized people, those baptized disciples, that were to nurture into the full obedience of the faith and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Think about this. The fact that Jesus commands his followers to make disciples, to baptize, and to teach them. Those are the two things that hang there, right? You make disciples, but the two things that hang, you baptize and you teach them. Think about this. Do you reckon it presupposes something there? It assumes that the person being baptized is both old enough and mature enough to know what they're doing. They're able to consciously choose to be baptized and they're capable of being instructed in the Christian faith. How can infants, how can infants repent and have a personal faith in Jesus? How can they be instructed about the meaning of baptism? How can they learn to obey everything Jesus commands them? They can't. Which leads us to our next point. The method. The method. Baptism, clearly in this, is for believers. Baptism is for believers. We've looked at the mandate, now the method. When someone believes in Jesus, when they repent of their sin and turn to him, they are, according to the scriptures, remember 96 different times, they're baptized. Here's the deal. Belief and baptism go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. Well, don't just take my word for it. Look at the book of Acts. Look at the book of Acts. Acts 8. But when they believed Philip, you know, this, this part actually can come up on the PowerPoint, so if you want to flip there, you can. But when they, I'm just going to go through them really quickly, okay? That's the reason they're, we're going to just rattle these off really quickly. But I want you to notice as I do, I'm going to go through like three or four instances in Acts. There's heaps more. But I'm just going to go, watch, watch the close connection between belief and baptism. Watch this, okay? But when they believed, Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were, what? Baptized. Both men and women. Even Simon himself believed 
And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Or take Acts 10. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all... This is Cornelius, right? The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized. Now, when Paul shows up in Philippi, he expects to find a synagogue. Right? Because that's what he does. Paul enters the synagogue and he reasons from the scriptures proving that they're the Christ. But he doesn't find one. Instead, he just finds this handful of women near a river. One of the ladies responds to what Paul is saying by God's sovereign grace. And look how, Paul, look how Luke describes it in Acts 16. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. That is, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after, she was baptized. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, Acts 18, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Now, this is the part where I want you to turn in your Bibles. I love this passage in Acts 8 with Philip and the eunuch. So turn to Acts 8. If you're, some of you are already flipping around in Acts, which is great. But look at Acts 8. This is just a phenomenal text. It's always stuck, really, really stuck out to me. Acts 8, you can, uh, we'll go to Philip and the eunuch, which picks up in verse 26. So Acts 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch. Does this sound familiar? Maybe some of you read this before. Ethiopian eunuch, right? Notice what's going there. Uh, he was returning, verse 28, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. 29, and the Spirit of the Lord said to Philip, go over it and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? Oh, man, if I could just experience that. <laughs> it's just like softball, right? It's just amazing. And look what he's reading. It's not just reading any passage. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before it shears is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can divide, describe this generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, 
Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Wow. You see, when someone is baptized into the name of Jesus, it assumes, I mean, can't you see it from the Philip and the eunuch? It assumes that they know some gospel. Like I, Philip explained it to him. Oh, well, let me explain this passage to you. They, they, they have some comprehension of who Christ is, what it means to turn from their sin, to follow him. See, I, ho- I hope it's becoming undeniably clear to you, it, it, just from the passages we looked at Acts and look at here, that there's an inseparable link, are you seeing it, between belief and baptism. Now, before we move on from this passage here in Acts, I think it's appropriate. We're right here. We might as well see the mode. Can you see the mode, the type of baptism, the kind of baptism that's performed on the Ethiopian eunuch? Well, look here in verse 36. I love this. And they were going along the road, and they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now watch Watch, friends, watch how Luke paints a vivid picture of the mode of baptism. Notice the kind of language he uses in verse 38. Can you see it there? If you're looking at your Bibles, he went down into the water. You see that? And then came up out of the water. Clearly, this image represents immersion, to be submerged. The eunuch, this Ethiopian eunuch, is not baptized by sprinkling. He's baptized by full immersion. I mean, if, the, if this baptism were sprinkling, <laughs> don't you think it'd be rather odd when he says, oh, look, here's some water. I mean, <laughs> come on, you only need a small cup of water if you're going to sprinkle someone. But they happen by, in God's providence upon this large body of water, and there are baptized. Or how about going back to John the Baptist? He's in the Jordan River, Right? And people are being baptized. Same imagery is used, by the way, of Jesus going down into the water, coming up again. Heaven split open. We already talked about that. He's baptizing folks in the Jordan River. Now, here's what's fascinating. I talked about Greek before, but I'm, I'll mention it again. The word in Greek, it means, it's baptizo, means to immerse, to plunge, to drown, really. If you're baptized, don't worry, I'm not going to, you know. But you get, the, you get the picture. It's not sprinkling. It's to immerse. You know what's fascinating? You familiar with the Greek Orthodox Church? They virtually get everything wrong, but they got one thing right. They baptize infants, which is wrong, but they do so by immersion. Why would the heck would they do that? Because they know Greek. They know that the word baptizo means submerge. Now, I don't know how long they hold the infant. I don't know how that works. But the, the, the point is, I think it's, it's pretty clear, isn't it? Even if you just study the word in its meaning, it means to plunge, dunk, drown, immerse, dip, not sprinkle. The mode, you see, is not irrelevant because it reflects a spiritual reality. Do you understand? 
That is, those of us that are in Christ have been baptized into Christ by immersion. We're immersed into Christ, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Now, where am I getting that? Let's go to Romans 6. Turn to Romans 6 with me and see how this is fleshed out. We're just dropping into Romans 6. But up to this point, the letter has answered such questions, right? Massive questions as, why is salvation needed? What has God done to affect it? How, how can we appropriate it? The answers, they come to us in terms of sin, condemnation, the gift of Christ, faith, and justification. So I'm just trying to bring you up to speed in Romans here. Paul, Paul's just been pointing in chapter 5 to how Adam introduced death to humanity, whereas Christ brought life through his death and resurrection. That brings us now to Romans chapter 6. Let's pick up in verse 1. Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Isn't that interesting? Because he's talked about justification, right? Talking about dead in Adam, alive in Christ. And then you could see how as he, he anticipates what people might think and go, oh, well, I can just send it up now, right? He goes, no, 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 no. What kind of dumb idea is that? Because someone might say, well, hey, look, the more I sin, the more God's grace will be required to meet the situation. And that gives God more glory at the end of the day. So let's send it up. Paul, Paul's horrified. It's such a perverse suggestion. He says in verse two, by no means, right? Perish the thought. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And then the next verse, he says, our death to sin was accomplished by being baptized into Christ. Notice here, verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Again, in the previous chapter, Paul said that we're identified with Adam but now we're identified with Christ by means of baptism. Um, imagine for a moment, because think about this, what kind of baptism is he talking about? Water baptism or spirit baptism? Well, imagine for a moment that we could tap Paul on the shoulder here. Hey, hey, you talking about water baptism or spirit baptism? And he'd say, both. Both. If you're in Christ, this baptism that we're, I'm describing has occurred spiritually, but it's made visible through water baptism. I don't think Paul is dividing spirit and water baptism. He, he seems actually connect, to be connecting them. Look at verse 4. What does he say in verse 4? We are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. You see, death and burial are portrayed when a Christian is submerged underwater. You ever wonder that? You know, see people going down. You know, what's going on there? What's it representing? They're being submerged, death and burial. But the immersion from the water points to the new life that the Christian enjoys. Buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Water baptism is a solemn and beautiful emblem, is it not? It's, it's a beautiful emblem emblem of our faith that saves, of faith that saves by God's grace. It is a picture of our death 
and burial and resurrection of being united with Christ. What does Paul say? I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, right? One of my pastors from my old church put it this way. I think it's pretty helpful. I won't impersonate him. I've done too many singing already this morning, but I can impersonate him. But Tom Schreiner, he puts it this way. He says, those who are baptized have died to their old selves, are alive to God in Christ Jesus, and have put their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. Like what he says this. Baptism portrays what God has done for them in Christ. They have died and been buried with Christ and now have risen to new life in Him. Baptism functions as a pictorial representation of such when believers are submerged under the waters and then reemerge again. I think that's really helpful, actually. It's an interesting thought, though, too. Think about this. Paul couldn't, Paul couldn't say these truths to the Romans. He hadn't met them yet, by the way. But he couldn't say these truths unless he just assumes that they're already been baptized. When Paul writes his letters, the assumption is to the church that he's writing to, you don't have, oh, well, there's the, you know, the really committed crew over here that's been baptized. There's the other people that haven't. No, no, he just assumes that everyone's been baptized. Now, let me speak to those of you that are sitting here this morning that have not been baptized as a believer. Let's just say that as an adult, you become a Christian, right? As an adult. But you've never been baptized. You can still go to heaven, right? Hello, thief on the cross, yes. So what harm is done if you're not baptized? Well, I'll give you a few. You're dishonoring Christ and disobeying him for one. Believe and be baptized. You understand? If you're not baptized, you are actually not honoring Christ. Plus, you miss out on an opportunity to proclaim him publicly. It was so encouraging with Carrie Ann and with Jeff and with Caleb. Well, I felt encouraged hearing God's grace in their life. You miss out, plus as well, as the, a local church is able to confirm that the profession that you've made. Right? Otherwise, I mean, if baptism was just all about Caleb, for instance, well, dude, just go do it yourself, you know? Baptize yourself somehow. No, 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 it's the whole local church coming around this brother and Carrie Ann to say, we actually affirm and seeing the fruits of the Spirit in your life. And we actually affirm those things. And it's a visual reminder of someone's death to self and life in Christ. And, and you know, other people lose out on that reminder of their own salvation. I, I, when you hear a testimony, are you reminded, yes, you know what? Wow, God saved me as well. And not only that, non-Christians miss out on a visual de depiction of the gospel when you're not baptized. So some pretty, things, pretty massive things to consider. Now, some of you in here don't disagree with that, but you're holding on to this, dare I say it, bizarre notion. A very bizarre notion that God has to personally tell you to do this. Okay, <laughs> I'm going to blast that thing. The Bible says don't steal. All right? Pretty airtight? 
Agreed? So when you're faced with an opportunity to pinch something this week, do you need God to whisper in your ear not to steal? I mean, does God need to give you a sign in the heavens, a vision, a dream? No. God has said it and that settles it. Yes? God also says, for those of you that are married, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, right? If you're tempted to be unfaithful to your spouse, do you need God to somehow tell you personally not to plunge into adultery? Does he need to tell you personally through some inner impression not to cheat on your spouse? To give you some sign? I hope not. It's pretty dangerous. God's word settle, says it, and that should settle it. In the same way, if God's word tells you to be baptized as a believer, why do you, why do you think, why do you suppose that you need some inner impression or voice from the Lord to obey him in this matter? Look, the Lord has already spoken. Believe and be baptized. Your job is to obey, period. Full stop. It's that simple. Now, that then raises the question, well, I don't know if I, do, I, don't know if I believe. What does that even mean to believe? I'm not so sure I'm a Christian. Wonderful. That's a healthy place. Look, there are people sitting in this room right now that aren't Christians. So how do you know if you're a Christian? How do you know if you have genuine saving faith? Do you turn to Jesus alone for the hope of forgiveness and eternal life? And you know what? We're going to be talking for the next two weeks. We're going to be looking at the book of 1 John. So I encourage you to have a go and read 1 John about what genuine saving faith is. That's going to be the next two weeks. So, so how do you know? How do I know? And look, and if, if you have more questions about what it means to be baptized, Dan and I would love that. Because Andrew's not here. But we'd love to talk to you more about those things. But for those of you that have questions and you've been able to fire them away at Dan, uh, brother, if you don't mind coming up here, we can try to answer some of your questions. And, um, you know, I, I'll say this um, as Dan's coming up. Um, if you're interested, you know, you know me, right? You ask me a question, I hand you a book. Um, and um, there is an excellent essay written by one of the professors from my seminary about understanding baptism and the covenants. It's a bit heady. But I reckon if you truly understand how the covenants work, you'll understand baptism. And so Steve Wellham wrote this article. I'll be, I think it's like I know, 40 pages or something. Um, I can ask Jillian. We can print it out for you. But come see me if you're interested in that. Um, and I reckon if you're like, oh, well, you know, he, he, really, he really, I think, um, does a good job clearing away any notion of infant baptism um, and, and why, that's, why that's wrong, really. Um, and so... Uh, Unbiblical, but anyway. Yeah, I actually read an interview with um, Stephen Wellham the other day on that topic. Oh, yeah? Um, it, like, he, he does it in a really clear but sensitive way. Like, he's, yeah, he's just good at, at handling it. Yeah, it was on Gospel College. Oh, no way. Mm. Well, there you go. There's the short version if you don't want to read the 40-page book. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Maybe it was re reflecting that. So, Steve Wellham was, he was like, I used to call him, it sounds awkward, but I used to call him my father in the faith. Cause, but, but he was like the, my go-to guy at, at Southern Seminary, and he's brilliant. Like he's, 
We got some questions. Yeah. So, um, and feel free to send more through uh, if you want. My number's still there. Please don't prank call it. Um, <laughs> what do you make of Lydia? So this is in Acts 16, uh, the woman by the river, that after she believed and baptized, but also mm. the members of her household were baptized as well, weren't her? children also baptized so i I actually noticed i was pretty eagle-eyed you skipped over reading those bits in the the verses on the screen i did so it didn't it says it it says a household that's right that's right and and crispus too what do we do with that like i can answer if you want give your voice a break you you go for it first ben yeah Yeah. okay cool um so um yeah there are a few what we would call household baptisms uh, across acts um, one of them is in Acts chapter 16, so Lydia. Yep. Um, the other, Philippian jailer. Yeah, the Philippian yep. jailer is the other one as well in Acts 16. It's worth taking a look. Gra- grab your Bible, open Acts 16. Hard thing about holding a microphone is you can't heaps hold your Bible at the same time. Yeah, no. Yeah, so you want to use the bit, bit awkward. No, 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 that's fine. That's okay. You say that. Uh, so... Um, we're, we're not told too much with Lydia, but it's a, it's a pretty comparable situation with the jailer. So jump over there, uh, verse 25 onwards. You know the story? Um, Paul and Silas are there singing, the, the God saves her, and the jailer confesses belief. He's struck by what the Lord has done. Um, and uh, Paul preaches the gospel. He believes. So um, verse 30... Where is it? Verse 33 is the tough one. So... Paul took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptised at once, says the jailer, he and all his family. Now, could that include infants? Uh, maybe it does. If it includes infants, then, then maybe infant baptism's actually okay. There's, there's the idea. Um, and I understand why you didn't read those bits out, because it, it enters his whole thing. But it's a good question. Hmm. Um, however... It's worth noting a couple of things here. Firstly, that in verse 32, notice who Paul speaks to. So Paul and Silas, they speak the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. So all of them, whoever is part of the family, they all hear the Mm. word of the Lord. So they're not just being baptized willy-nilly. They hear and then which, which requires comprehension. Requires, well, yes, that, that's the statement. And then in verse 34, the end of that, he rejoiced along with his, same phrase, entire household hmm. that he believed in God. Now, now, who can rejoice? Only someone who, who has the, the cognition to actually rejoice. So that, that phrase, when it's used, household, 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 whole family, that two of those times is clearly not including infants, right? Because there's hearing and comprehension and then there's rejoicing. Um, whereas in the middle you then have baptism, him and his whole household. It's really only those who heard and comprehended and then later rejoiced. Um, if you want to add to that, to that as well, uh, Acts 2, 41 and 42, yep. worth looking at. Yep. Um, this is kind of, if you want to think of how to make sense of all the baptisms that take place across the, the book of Acts... Keep these two verses in mind. So Acts 2.41, remember Peter has just preached the gospel at Pentecost and and people are saying, what should we do? Verse 41, um, those who received his word were baptised. 
And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So who, who are the ones who were baptised? Yeah, those who received that is believed mm. in the word of the gospel. And then at verse 42, those are the ones that are brought into this new Christian community. They're the ones that devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and so on and so on. So, uh, again, only those who have the capacity to actually understand the word. That, that's the, the framing over the book of Acts. Um, if you want another example, there's another one, um, Stephanus. Is that right? 1 Corinthians 1, something. talks about um, uh, him, him being baptised, uh, but him and his, his household believing. Or well, Crispus. Crispus is the other one, Acts 18 that you quoted, mm. um, where uh, Crispus, him and, it says him and his whole household believed. Again, that's evidently not infants. Um, yeah, is that yeah, and answer I think, that question? I, I think it's too. It's, it's interesting. So people that baptize infants, look what they're doing there. It's a, it's a bit tricky. They're making an argument from silence, <laughs> right? Where that's pretty airtight when you just believe in baptism is pretty clear. So in other words, oh, well, how do you know there weren't infants there? Well, let's just scrap all the rest of the 96 other verses that talk about belief in baptism. It's a pretty... It's a pretty it's a pretty shaky argument, actually. Um, uh, to, to be fair, yeah. Uh, to be fair, that's that's part of the argument. Uh, as you're familiar, the, the other part of the argument is uh, what's called covenant theology. Yes. If you've ever encountered this, so uh, in the Old Testament, uh, how did someone become part of the covenant community of Israel? Mm. They were circumcised if they were a dude, um, and uh, and so an infant would be circumcised at eight days old. They would then be considered part of the covenant community, and if um, an outsider came in uh, and and confessed, yes, I want to follow the God of Israel, they would also be circumcised. So you had this sort of external means of, like physical means of, of entering the community. Uh, now, for that infant, of course, again, they can't say, I want to follow the God of Israel. It's just they've got parents that that want to, and so um, the argument goes. It's much the same with infant baptism today. Uh, it, it, here's the, the way of entering the, the community. It's just like with circumcision. Um, they don't make a decision. Their parents do, and they're considered part of the covenant community. The big difference, however, is that under the new covenant... Ding, ding. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not a mixed community anymore. It's not a mixed community of, of some who have had this external physical thing done to them and don't actually believe and then some who do believe it's the new covenant community is only believers right it's only those who have faith in jesus christ um i'll say it a little more polemically yeah yeah dan you've got the nice way god's not a polygamist he has one bride of christ yeah 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 no that's right he doesn't have some who are kind of waiting we'll see if they believe and then some that do it's only those that do so that's, I that's should have let you keep too. with the nice part. I kind of came in on... Great, great question here as well, just on infant baptism. When did it begin? Uh, was it because of plagues? People worried about their babies dying, go to hell? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, come, so, to, come to equip. Come, come to equip. equip. Yeah, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll handle that one day. Here's yeah. the short answer. Yeah. I think end of the second century, you get a dude, Origen, who starts talking about infant baptism. Um, and then, uh, is, it, is it Augustine? He, he really takes it on. He really mucks it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah sort of. He, he, a lot of good things, but this wasn't one of them. Um, mm. So he's writing, was it 4th century, 3rd, 4th century? And um, he basically makes the argument that if, if your kid isn't baptised, they will go to hell. Um, so get them baptised. And that, that becomes the, uh, the status quo for the church for centuries. 
Um, so when you yeah. can imagine as a parent, you oh, hear yeah. that and go, oh my goodness. And yeah. yeah, yeah, you better get insurance, like, because otherwise something really bad will happen. So, um, you know, we, within about a couple of hundred years of, of the Gospels, you get this idea developing. The only thing too I'd add on to there historically is, because there are, let, let me, and let's be clear, there, um, there are some solid churches here on the coast that practice infant baptism. I say solid in the sense that they are preaching Christ and Him crucified, okay? Um, but part of the reason I think that they're doing, that their denominations, be it Anglican, be it Presbyterian, is they haven't stripped off everything from the Reformation, or sorry, stripped off everything pre-Reformation. So in other words, the Reformation was sola scriptura, the scriptures alone, and these guys just, they just haven't fully got rid of all of the residue that's there from pre-Reformation days, still with me? And so that's why they're still baptizing infants. They would make the argument of a covenantal argument, but I would argue, and if you read Steve Wellens' article or even go watch that, I just don't think they quite understand how the covenants work. So, yeah, Wellam does yeah. a great job at deconstructing that, actually, yeah. in, in a way that's really accessible and understandable. We'll, we'll send that around, perhaps, if people want to engage yeah. with it and read it. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll send an email tomorrow. Yeah. What you got there? Um, oh, man, I'm going to throw this question at you. Uh, this is our <laughs> last one we got, by the way, unless anyone else sends something through. Um, I work with and pray for a lot of people with disabilities that don't have the ability to explain or comprehend the gospel. Uh, there's bigger questions around showing and teaching the gospel, but, but what do we make of Christian parents raising a young adult with disabilities who might mm. never be able to actually profess faith? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's one to think sure. about before throwing if it. You have a, if, especially if it's your kid. You don't, know, you don't know what God and his sovereign grace does in their heart, and you share the gospel. And you leave the results up to God. We we don't know. Uh, that's the that's the easiest way I could answer it. Good answer. You know, yeah. like we just we don't know. So, yeah. So, yep. And I've got more books on that issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, no, yeah so. But I, I think that's that's pretty much the conclusion, right? Yeah. yeah. One of the passages you mentioned, Dan, was the importance um, in Acts of believe and be baptized in Acts two, and then those same people, as you rightly noted. Are, are then visibly a part of, you know, God added to their number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those who are being saved, et cetera, et cetera. And, and not just that, but those are the people partaking in the Lord's Supper and celebrating those things. Um, I think that might be a good segue, brother, for you to take us away for uh, yeah. the time of our let's, communion. Uh, let's together, get into so. Lord's Supper. Yeah. Absolutely.